Welcome, everybody, to the show. This is Eric Wright. I'm the host for your Disco Posse podcast. Thank you for listening, watching. Oh, that's right. If you are listening now and you want to see this in video action, you can head on over to youtube.com forward slash Disco Posse podcast, and you can see it all as it happened, which was really cool. Nice new element for the listening podcast if you want to see the viewer side of it all. This is a great episode featuring Donna Laughlin, who is the founder of LMGPR, and she's also the voice behind the Before It Happened podcast. Donna's a fantastic storyteller, a fantastic, as she describes it, the PR she-devil. Super cool, we get into the background to that, her own history in Silicon Valley, what drew her to the industry, really, really enjoyable. and. I think of the people in the industry that I know do such a great job that I would trust my company to them. Donna is one of those folks. So she's really, really got a good sense of how to draw fantastic stories out of the human experience, especially with really wild, like way ahead of the curve technology companies. So go check her out. But in the meantime, speaking of checking out companies that are super cool that I really adore. I want to give a shout out to the folks that do support this podcast, including the friends over at Veeam Software. They've got some really neat stuff going on. So you got to check out new landing page. All you got to do is go to vee.am forward slash disco posse. You will love what you see there. Very cool. Everything you need for your data protection needs, regardless of whether it's on-prem, in the cloud, cloud native, Wowee, wow. And SaaS stuff, even stuff like Microsoft Teams and, and your Office 365 and more coming. So you gotta gotta get over there and, and check it out. Definitely worthwhile. VEE.AM forward slash Disco Posse. And when you talk about other things around protecting yourself, protecting your identity, protecting your data in transit, I recommend that you should use a VPN as do I. So if you wanna try one out, I do recommend using ExpressVPN. I'm a customer, and so if you want to go, it's very easy to do. Go to tryexpressvpn.com forward slash discoposse, and that's an easy way to get hooked up there and make sure you protect yourself because uh, there's a lot of bad stuff going on out in the world. And while you're at it, don't forget to enjoy a fantastic, tasty, delicious Diabolical Coffee. Go to diabolicalcoffee.com and caffeinate your way to goodness. All right, this is Donna Laughlin. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. This is Donna Laughlin from Silicon Valley, and this is the Disco Posse podcast. I'm the host of Before It Happened, and I'm known for in the Silicon Valley as sometimes the PR she-devil. I love it. <laughs> the PR she devil is officially the best title ever. So people always say they, they want to have founder beside their name. I'd say PR she devil is way cooler than founder. So Donna, thank you very much for, for joining. I'm excited by the chance to chat today. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. This is a beautiful thing where I love when you, you ever read a book and you're interested in that book. And then that book references another book that you've already read. And then you know, you're like, this is it. I'm in my perfect space. When your name came to me as a potential guest, Donna, it was that moment where I said, wait a second, storyteller, 
podcaster, Silicon Valley. I legitimately, I could, this could be my last podcast. I've officially hit the perfect guest. Uh, so you've got a fantastic background in what you bring to the world. You have an amazing, I love your podcast style. So Don, if you want to introduce yourself to the, the viewers and listeners, and then we're going to jump into what your, what the, what the PRC devil does. And, and of course, we'll talk about your podcast and much, much more. Yeah, the, the she devil is a little bit naughty, but a whole lot nice. Um, <laughs> for the, the last 20 years, I've had my PR agency called uh, LMGPR, which stands for Leadership, Momentum and Growth, which is ultimately what I do working with emerging tech companies. Oftentimes, they're uh, two guys and a and a cat or two gals and a dog, and, and they have a great idea and uh, looking to bring a company to market. Other times, the product is much further along. And they're gearing up for funding or for even an IPO. And so my, my role in, in collaborating with them is very hands-on in developing the core messaging, the narrative to bring the product to market. And not just the product, but also the company. And that means the texture and the fabric of who are the, who are the, the visionaries uh, behind the company. And that's what really ignites me. And that's what my podcast is about, too, is the visionaries and the future that they imagine. In your your intro, which I love, uh, you're just it's beautifully well produced, and I love that style. I'm sort of the the free form uh, does not have time or capability to edit in such a beautiful way. But your idea of like before it happens, the moment you really know how to like go through this discussion and then pin down the thing that's sometimes people don't even realize that's actually the thing. It's what makes a great author. You know, if you read Stephen Pressfield and, and you read about like this whole style of, of PR and playwriting and screenwriting and, and everything and storytelling, it's like that pinpoint moment that then you wrap in this fantastic, the run up, the conflict, like it's all the fundamentals. It, it, it seems effortless in the way you do it, which I know that means it's absolutely not. <laughs> but do you remember when you were a child and you would you would uh, be a story hour, whether it be at school or with your parent or your grandparent, and you would sit in his circle. And so ultimately, that was what I really wanted to achieve with uh, before it happened was that opportunity where you have this up close and personal kind of story time, you know, with with somebody who's actually changing how we live and work. And to do that, I couldn't do a straight interview. I wanted to do kind of a narrative style. I'm a former news reporter. And so I would go out and interview and I would come back and report. And so it is a slightly longer process, but the, the goal is to create something that is a little bit of a gift back to these individuals that have worked super hard in, in undaunting hours and, and whether it you know, is raising funding or finding getting the patents approved and all the things that they do. I, I'm just in awe that this unstoppable spirit that we know that the entrepreneur has. But in my scenario, it's these big idea creators. And I'm not a um, I'm not a tinkerer. I'm more of a thinker. And I sit back and I look at and in all respect and say, wow, you know, we can actually do this. We can drive an electric car. We can have a a smart device in our in our home and we can, you know, charge our 
our vehicle to home, you know, with an electric motorcycle, all these things just are enchanting to me. And I think the key to any of the success of these technologies and these, these platforms and these websites, whatever they are, any business is really about making it matter to the prospective customer. And it's when you're the creator, when you're the innovator, it's very difficult to be that focused on it. They probably shouldn't be. In fact, they should be like, I know amazing engineers who are creating fantastic systems and they probably wouldn't pass a Turing test. I would never want to put them in charge of the website or the marketing or understanding the customer story and being able to emote that. And that's really what it is. It's not just like writing down what we do. It is like making someone care about what we're going to achieve together you know, and empowering them. It's the hero's journey. It's all this stuff. And when paired with a great technology and being able to give them that capability to find their story, it's, uh, it's, it needs to come from outside, I think, because when you're close to it, when you're inside, they, they can't possibly be thinking that way. Like it's too hard. You're way too introspective and you have to be to be this like fanatical founders mindset of like, we just, the world is wrong. I'm going to solve it this way. <laughs> yeah. Well, too often I, I've experienced what I call ego engineering, which is my own term. There's ego engineering and then there's innovation. There are true innovators that, that imagine the most amazing, um, you know, products and concepts that sometimes don't even go to market. And then I've met over the years, others who have, a, a me too product. That's not even a challenger product that have egos that are bigger than the sum of its parts. And those products usually don't go very far. And those are typically not the ones that I work with, but in the land of unicorns, we see a lot of them and I'm not going to name any, but we just know what, you know, what's the kind of the fashion and anistas of the, of the time. I really look for the acorns that ultimately can grow to be these majestic you know, what I call, you know, majestic oaks, right? you got to start someplace. And so to me, the unicorns, uh, unicorns are made, you know, great. We all need them for the, you know, for financial purposes. And oftentimes we chase the unicorn, but planting seeds and, and developing something from scratch before a unicorn, you know, existed, they had to come from someplace. And, you know, you get people like, I love Guy Raz and, and how I built this, um, it's one of my favorite podcasts and it's many people's favorite podcasts, but he really profiles the unicorns. And right. I felt my, my sweet spot is working and collaborating in and on my podcast showcasing the acorns. In fact, I have an acorn this week that's actually going to IPO. And that's really exciting wow. to see a company uh, go from in the last seven years, going from zero to hero. It's it's a beautiful thing, isn't it, to see it come to fruition? Because it's it's not a winning game. Like it's <laughs> the a lot of the statistics are not in favor of the business succeeding. There's a lot of headwinds. There's a lot of stuff. What's your <clears throat> you know? In looking back, what draws you to be able to coach them through that journey and bring them through that journey? Well, you know, it really starts with listening. And so often we don't listen and we respond. 
which is just human nature has nothing to do with being a reporter or in, in marketing, but really listening and, and being able to extract, you know, the content. So when I first started out in my career, I would go out with a, another reporter and his number one thing with me was watch me. Don't say anything. Just watch me, watch me in action. And so that was his way of teaching me, you know, kind of the, the ropes of listening and being able to collect because the more you listen, I think the more people talk. And so it's very important when I'm abstracting information from a, you know, a scientist, an engineer, core founding uh, founders of a, of a, of a new product or company and is really listening, but helping them also rediscover what they might've forgotten because they've been so busy on developing the product and meeting patent deadlines or getting funding. And so going back through that discovery phase, the same way I described sitting down and, and having a story hour is I literally take them to a process. What is a self-discovery process of going back to the roots of why did they even set out to create the product? What is their vision? And so oftentimes, you know, we, you know, the company mission statement when the company is, is um, forging ahead. But if we go back to what was the vision that you had? Was there a dream? Was there a problem that you were solving? Was there a moment that you realized that you wanted to create um, a, a carbon, you know, a foot, you know, print energy saving, you know, operational building device, which is a mouthful, but, or an electric motorcycle or an electric tractor, like what really happened? And, and so really going through that discovery process and reigniting them as well to like, wow, you know what? I actually imagineered using a Disney word, but something that nobody else had, but what is the problem? And then what is the solution to that problem and really taking them back to that roots? Because oftentimes they just, they get so tangled up and all the other intricacies of things, they forget what the original origin was. Yeah. And I think that the vision and the mission, like the only people that can carry that so strongly are all often the founding team, right? It's as much as you can create those early disciples, you know, the first 10 employees, the first 20 employees, even later on down the road, the, the folks that really, they built the idea, then they built the product to deliver the idea. The idea is still in them, but most people beyond that are product builders, not idea. Like they're not necessarily attached to the idea strongly. And this is where you have this funny thing. There's like, uh, a great book called uh, The Founder's Mentality. It's actually, I think it's by Bain and Company. They're uh, Boston-based. Uh, they're great book, read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I actually, at my company's uh, engineering kickoff, I noticed we were in this weird sort of struggle of like where product was diverging from vision and we were struggling with where, like we were well, well capital, everything was going well. But you could tell there was tension in, should we build a feature or should we go back to the core? And I really saw this pull. So I showed it to our, our founder. And then when I got to the engineering kickoff, it was the most warm feeling I've ever had in my, my, my body and my mind as I walked in and I saw 200 seats, each with a copy of the founder's mentality sitting on it. Wow. Because what we wanted to get to was this, remember why we're here, 
right? What we're doing now is important, but what's more important is why we are doing it. And it really allowed everybody to go back to the core of what was the reason we did this. And 10 years, 12 years at, at any company's age, it's a really, it's a struggle. It's like having a teenager. They're suddenly like forgetting that they were the kid that wore a Pokemon costume in, in at age six and they want to be their own thing. And you realize like, you can't forget your upbringing. You can't forget what got you here. And it's I know, very I've been easy. To some meetings where grown, grown people are wearing Pokemon costumes and hard <laughs> track. <laughs> hanging on, hanging on to the dream. <laughs> that's it. That's it there. So I, I love this idea of, you know, making sure that people stay true to that because also that comes with culture too, right? Like culture is the way they behave when you're not looking. It's not the thing written behind the the desk at the front, you know, by the elevator. <laughs> yeah, no, I was just going to say that. And also they know that founder's passion does dictate culture. And as companies grow, sometimes they lose sight of that. So years ago, um, I was fortunate to work with Sun Microsystems and might not be a company a lot of people know, but uh, it was a really innovative company back in the networking boom. And Sun had a, a building that was full of security uh, experts that I was kind of told not to go to. It was literally because there was one company, but there was like these different think tanks within under the corporation. And so I was working in the, with the corporate group, but I would wander around because I'm like, oh, there's distinguished engineers in each one of these groups. I wonder what they're working on. So, <laughs> excuse me, they're a little bit naughty. Me, the, the curiosity seeker, ended up finding out about the, uh, the security group, which was amazing. And in that group, there were all these, and this is in the 90s. So this is before cybersecurity really took off. And I'm kind of like poking around and I find out, wow, the hardware group is actually creating something in security. The software group is creating something in security. And, but they don't talk to each other. So I ended up um, kind of propelling and, and shaping what ultimately became a security symposium which brought the, both the hardware and the software and a bunch of industry experts together and being able to daisy change the network. And, and that's just kind of in, indicative to the types of things that I do on an ongoing basis is looking at who's in your network and how do you actually get to reach your goal faster? So we had analysts and, and uh, there was an investor's day and, and all the, the who's who in, in security over the years that as cybersecurity continued to, to grow and become, you know, part of the, the, I would say mainstay and the standard, um, I was fortunate to work with, you know, a company that ultimately came out of, out of the basement of that building. And I didn't know it until I went sat down with the founders and I found out we had a common connection. He was one of the top security innovators that was in the basement that I wasn't allowed to go to. And that company recently was uh, acquired, uh, went through our IPO and then acquired by McAfee. So looking back at that, that where the company was, the vision of what they wanted to be and the roots that they had is exactly kind of that, that exploration process that I was describing is if you put six people in the room, you have six different backgrounds, six different journeys, six different educational levels. Some could have completed college. Some could have, uh, you know, have a PhD. Others might've been high school graduates, um, regional cultural differences on all those components 
are basically the makings of a great narrative recipe and is looking at all those components. And that's indicative to the Silicon Valley. That's very uh, tried and true to other regions in the United States. But I think when you look at the entrepreneurial spirit, the entrepreneurial spirit doesn't have any boundaries, really. It doesn't have a gender. It doesn't have an IQ. Well, maybe it has an IQ, uh, <laughs> but it doesn't have a lot of things. It's it's like really for the fearless, you know, um, fearless person that really wants to break out of the mold. And one of the things that we keep reading about in, in the pandemic is people leaving their their jobs and and starting their own businesses. And I think that's pretty exciting for the marketplace. Well, this is the interesting thing, especially now, because we hear about the great resignation and, you know, we see things like the jobs numbers and it really is, it's tough to measure today what's really going on. In fact, one of my, one of guests I had not too long ago is Michelle Seiler Tucker. And she had a, she wrote a book called Exit Rich. She's written a couple of books, actually really, really fantastic person. She specializes in helping businesses to reach a, a point of growth and towards a sale and make sure they can organize the business to be most effective, you know, uh, through that process. So she, and she dig into the numbers. I wouldn't know how to do that at all. I'm glad she yeah. did it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The, one of the things that she talked about is this sort of like false statistic that we all carry around that like 90% of startups fail. Well, in fact, according to the small business administration, it's actually the inverse, that companies that are larger than 10 years old are more likely to fail than one that is in the first five years. So what we've, we've been quoting this old statistic and it carried through a generational change. And now that we're finally going to catch up and we're seeing now, of course, people are leaving, they're realizing they, the technology is there to start from your desk. You can put yeah. together a website. You can do, and so easy to do relative to, you know, what it was 30 years ago. You know, I hire and fire myself pretty frequently. There are <laughs> days that I just can't, like, I just can't deal with it. Um, but the, also that, that also reignites me to think, okay, what can I do better? What can I do smarter? What can I do faster? Do I need to hire people? Do I need to, you know, hire a, a, um, a consultant, you know, to help out with, you know, with different gaps? Um but I'm excited about even in my own small town, and I live in, in San Jose, California, which is not small, it's over a million people, but I live in a community, a subset of the community that does have its own little downtown, It's in, in, and it's a little bit of a village, and I call it the Cotswolds, although it's not quite the Cotswolds, <laughs> <laughs> but I see some new businesses coming in and it's really exciting. We, we lost some businesses and in, in there in the pandemic. But one of the things that I, I thought was so amazing was the community came together for a children's bookstore that was owned by two retired school teachers. And it's a fabulous bookstore and called Hickleby's. And the community came together and helped raise over $200,000 for a bookstore. Wow. And meanwhile, we have restaurants and other businesses that were, you know, struggling. But the bookstore is such a pillar of education and STEM and the future. They have a, a, a book wall for, for those who can't afford to buy a book. It's like, you know, uh, give a book, take a book, people donate books. And so it's just a part of the community. But 
that that was pretty exciting to see in the bookstores thriving, but they used to do all kinds of book signings and book unveilings and all those things stop. Um, but on the same street, I'm seeing other, you know, family-based businesses, people that I've known in my community that had corporate jobs and, and a lot of jobs in tech that are opening up restaurants and they're opening up champagne bars and opening up kids, uh, kids clothing stores. And to me, that's exciting to see that creativity yeah. come back into the community. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And I, it's like a, like a forest that has suffered in a, an unexpected fire, but in fact is in a way by nature's course is the best thing that can happen to it because it allows for regrowth, strong regrowth. Right. And that's really what I'm hoping is ahead is that we can see these people that are this next generation where they're like, yeah, we've, we've got, we've got a good savings and, you know, I've always wanted to do this. And it's, it's just possible. Now, of course, I, I was just on with somebody very recently and they're saying we're, we're putting together a central, like a, a meeting place for his company. It's like, we aren't doing a traditional office, but it is literally so cheap to get real estate space now because those, those folks need money, right? The, 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 the REITs are struggling everything around real estate is a real challenge right now. So they're willing to let people come in. So now if you want to get retail space, it's more accessible than it had been. And then you're supporting a landlord. You're, there's, it's a beautiful ecosystem to watch rebuild. Yeah. Well, unfortunately where I live, we live in some of the most fertile land, which was originally called the land of heart's delight and which ultimately became the Silicon Valley at the beginning. And so Defense companies were here, then then Hewlett Packard, and then you know later on Apple and and you know even IBM had a West Coast facility here and and um, you know stones thrown away from you know the Facebooks and the Googles and the yeah. all these companies and we we you know they say the land is fertile and so there's always growth opportunities but i, I laugh about that sometimes because i think why do we put concrete on some of the most fertile land and then it's expensive because a three bedroom you know two bath um you know tract home you know from the 70s maybe maybe built 70s 80s is going for 1.5 million yeah and <laughs> And then I go, I, and so I'm obsessed what, with home and garden as my hobby. And then um, there's a great Instagram site called Circa Homes, C-I-R-C-A. And I look at these beautiful farmhouses and these mid-century houses and, and every place from uh, Colorado to Ohio to Southern, you know, the Southern, the, you know, Southern states, Alabama, Arkansas, all the way to Florida. And I go, what am I doing here? <laughs> I know. And then I had to stand back and realize, okay, I have a purpose. I have, I have a reason to still be here and, and not to be hybrid, but I applaud those who can't be because I still feel that not quite like uh, Norman Rockwell and you know, stuck in a painting, but I still feel that the work that I'm doing is, is international because my clients are all over the world. But there's still something kind of majestic and also, also sometimes medicinal about the valley. Um, there's right. a lot of things about it that I would edit out, but I, I try to, you know, select the things that are, are most compelling and, and interesting 
interestingly enough, uh, I'm within miles just still from really fertile farmland. And I work with an electric tractor company. And so to me, it's kind of like back to my roots of growing up as a 4-H kid when the valley was apricots and cherries and, and walnut orchards. In fact, I live on a walnut orchard, <laughs> you know, it <which laughs> used to be wild. a walnut orchard. So I think, you know, the quote, the fruits of the labor of what we choose to advocate as entrepreneurs, whether you're a hair salon owner or a bookstore, a books, you know, bookstore a children's bookstore, um, or you're starting a tech company, or there's a couple of kids that live in my town that have created a, they're two brothers, they're actually the twins, and they, they have a cookie business. And they started during the pandemic, because they were home with their extra time, what to do. And so now they're serving their gourmet cookies into restaurants. I think that's brilliant. That's amazing. Yeah, the it is there is a real no matter how much you will see the shifting in the the makeup of the community and the population, it will still be at its core, you know, what Silicon Valley, a lot of the history of Silicon Valley will continue, even as you see more folks sort of decentralized, you know, real estate wise. You know, we'll see. Other up and coming areas, Austin, of course, is the next one, which is hilarious because then all the people in Austin are like, yeah, keep Austin weird. And they're like, keep out of Austin. Like, we're done. We, we want to stay but weird Austin and you're not weird enough. Spot for a while. There used to be shuttles daily from Silicon Valley to Austin back in the, in the dot-com bubble. Yeah. And so what I heard and speaking to someone that was in Austin uh, last week, reporter, is that people are living already 25, 30 miles outside the Tesla area because the housing is shooting up. So they once thought they could go there and get a home in the five to 800 range. And those houses are all been pushed up. So they're moving out further, which is no difference. It's the ripple effect. Yeah. Um, but one of the things about, you know, change and the pandemic and economies, I mean, I started my business in 2001, which was not the best time to start. It was a great time to start for recruiting because there were a lot of people that <laughs> were a lot at, of people on the market. <laughs> yeah. There were a lot of people that were at home, not working, but in terms of the economy, but uh, to me, it was, it was a great time because it was either it was going to work or it wasn't going to work. And, and so uh, being able to kind of stand back and look at the the opportunity, we have to be agile and we have to be make sure that we're continuously going through that discovery process. And it's not a one size fits all entrepreneurial t-shirt that we go around wearing. It's, you know, how we have a bad economy or we have some type form of crisis, or maybe there's a personal crisis, whatever see a change is happening, we need to be able to paddle out of that really quickly. So I think 2020 was like, eh, okay, we got through it. 2021 is like, okay, we got through a little better. We were paddling. Now 2022, I'd like, okay, we're canoeing. We're going upstream, <laughs> you know? And that's, I think that's the part of the, the continuous kind of entrepreneurial spirit. If if one has never owned and operated their own business and whether it's part-time or full-time, it could be, you know, at the farmer's market or it could be a, become an LLC corporation. doesn't make any difference. You don't really have a day off. And that's right. the one thing that people is the myth buster. I think is that people think, Oh, you have your own business. I have a friend who calls me constantly. She's retired now. She's been retired for quite a while. Um, at a nice pot of gold, but a company and she's constantly said, let's do this. And I'm like, it's Wednesday at 
three, I'm working. <laughs> and it might be Saturday at three and I might be working. So I, I think that's one of the, the other components. Um, there's a great book uh, called The Entrepreneur's Faces by John Littman. And John Littman used to be a Wired uh, reporter. He wrote for Mac, Mac Week um, and, uh, and PC Week and then Mac Week. So he went from, you know, from the one side to the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he wrote uh, a bunch of books uh, for IDEO, which is a design firm that is known very well in, in, in uh, consumer electronics space, working with Apple and Dell and everybody else. Uh, but his book, The Entrepreneur's Faces, is really interesting because he looks at the different type of prototypes of entrepreneurs, and they're not the obvious. So you'll find a collaborator or you'll find, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the visionary and the, the leader and all the different, the, all the different uh, parallels. Uh, but what I like about it is I found that I'm a little bit of each one of the potential profiles. Right. And oftentimes as entrepreneurs, and this is why we need to keep a, a, a tribe and the podcast that you created is really creating a community and a tribe for us to come together and share and collaborate and learn. And oh, by the way, listen, because listening is really good for us. The, uh, the One of the names that comes up very often it was it's EO, the Entrepreneurs Organization. And it is exactly that. There's like a very specific range. It's generally, I think they need to be like 1 million in revenue or like there's a certain floor and a ceiling. So basically, it's a great place for people that are in sort of this stage of business with that entire purpose. They're a community of practice with surrounded by people who are at exactly where you're at, who are living the pain you're living and can teach you lessons that you need to learn. And they can share stories and share understanding and learn from each other. And when I talk to people that are members of EO, quite often it's their second run because they'll have a successful exit at their company, and then they'll start a new startup. And the moment that they hit this range, they go right back because they want to give back to this community. And that's such a beautiful thing that people rarely see, you know, that side of entrepreneurship is that it is not, it's a lot, they think of it as like a lone wolf, this sort of idea monger, you know, strategy creator, somebody that's going out on their own and, uh, you know, they're a little bit odd and they're going to put together a a team like the bad news bears and they're going to create something that's going to change the world. But in fact, the moment that you give them an opportunity to sit with another founder, builder, anybody there, the excitement level for them to give something to that other person. It's amazing to watch. Yeah. That's what I think is so exciting about accelerator programs that are designed to be a platform to help um, I visionaries and, and entrepreneurs really think, uh, you know, out of the box and push them to discover, like, is this the right product to come to market? And recently I had uh, Johnny Crowder of Cope Notes um, on, on my podcast. And one of the things I really liked about him He's, yeah, he's so impressive. He's, you know, under 30, 29 still. And I'm like, when I was 29, I wasn't creating a company. I was working, you know, (laughs) I was, I I was working in editorial and, and, you know, and I had a great news, newsroom job 
but he created a company out of going back what I was describing a problem and a need. So he dealt deals dealt and had continues to deal with his whole life, schizophrenia, ADHD, um, all types of personal uh, challenges, but he turned that challenge into profit because by creating a, a platform that would allow him to send a, Hey, how are you doing today, Eric? You know, uh, Oh, I'm feeling kind of, I'm feeling really good, but I want some disco music it would make me feel so much better. Anyway, he created this whole platform that would allow him to connect with his, his small group of, of his community, his own personal community. But he realized going through an accelerator process that that potentially could be his business, which he's now created and it's called Cope Notes. And I love it. I subscribe to it. I've actually gave it to my, my, my daughter as part of her holiday gift. Um, I've given it to some of my employees and a couple of my friends because throughout the day you get these little nice life coach kind of cope notes. And I was just checking to see if I had one now. Yeah. Uh, I don't because I get them throughout the day and they're inspirational. It's kind of like that high five in the hallway or the water cooler conversation that we don't have anymore. Right. Yeah. Especially now. Right. And so that, yeah. So, but I just love the fact that you, you go from a place of, in his place of like, I don't know how to deal with this to like, Oh, I bet there's other people in the market that don't know how to deal with this. So therefore go going through mentoring and accelerating. And I think that's, what's great about, and I've gone to accelerator um, discussions throughout the U S and different regions. And it's the same spirit. It doesn't make any difference to Chicago or if it's in Austin or it's in Atlanta, uh, you know, North Carolina, um, that, that same hunger and thirst. And I think if we all help each other in that coaching process, because I always tell people it's, you're going to have some good days and you're going to have some bad days and you're going to have some in-between days and owning your own business. <laughs> yes. After 20 years. In fact, my, when I hit a 20 year anniversary mark, I just thought we were the right smack in the middle of the pandemic. And I don't think anybody cared. Nobody knew. I knew. I remember getting excited and telling some of my friends, they go, that's nice. You're going to have a party. I'm like, well, of course I'm not going to have a party. Um, I said, I'm going to create a video. And I'm going to create a podcast. That's exactly what, you know, was really kind of a a hallmark for me was, okay, I have 20 years of working and building and bringing companies and products to market. I had some stories that were not part of necessarily my business, but I've been carrying around in my back pocket of great people that I met that weren't my clients, that were in my network, that had amazing stories. And then other people outside my network as over time, it's, you know, it's, it's blossomed that way. And to me, that's really exciting because that just means that there's so much creativity and talent that's out there that you and I bringing these types of discussions, you know, to Mark will hopefully excite somebody to go out and do something different. Yeah. And, and you're, I, I, I say, I applaud your format as well because the, I really adore I, I like well-produced podcasts. Like I like tattoos. They're amazing to look at and I just don't have the, the stomach to do it myself. So you're, when I, the moment I turned the first one on, I was like, this is like an NBC, ABC. It's just beautifully done. It immediately draws you in. You do such a great job of, you know, putting a, a perfect hook 
letting you in and then the story plays out. And when you hear that, it's so easy to listen to and just immerse yourself in. And it's admirable because very few people have the ability to ask interview, ask questions and, and lead a conversation that will fit back into that format. So you, you know that you have to think about how it's going to work so that it's the most compelling way to consume it. And it's, it's such a weird thing. And I, I mean, I'm nerding out a little bit harder than most people would just because I listen to so many different styles. I've listened to, you know, short form, you know, and I'm, I'm long form conversational because I hate editing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, editing is, is an art of itself. Well, you know, I took it, um, when I first sat down and I made a list, I said, well, if I do a podcast, which ultimately I was going to write a book. And then I realized if I write a book, I'm going to be spending a lot of time by myself with a deadline. I'll get yeah. to that. I've edited like 80 books in, in my, in, in my career, but my book, eh, it could wait. I'm going to do a podcast. But then I started looking at all the platforms, the turnkey platforms in the market and then, you know, do it yourself, this and that. And I tried a few and I would, you know, record something and hear my voice and I go, well, that's great. But now how do I edit it? And, you know, and what if I actually don't want to do a, I want to want to do more narrative because being a former journalist, I, I like the, the narrative documentary style. Yeah, and yeah. so even as a child, I could watch uncountless, uh, I'm going to date myself, film strips or video reels. And my father um, would get things from universities within, you know, Stanford and Berkeley and Santa Clara University. The libraries would get rid of things and he would bring them home because I would just kind of geek out on all these science and nature type of uh, content. So I love science and technology and I love the deconstructing of things. You know, yeah, I would yeah. say I'm kind of a weird girl. I like the sound of a piston engine. I love the smell of, you know, a printer's ink. Uh, I also like lavender and cinnamon, but I, I, I tell behind my father, you know, going to the local Metro airport to going to car shows and going to um, rock exhibits and all these things that science fairs and competing in science fairs. And those were the things that as a kid, 4-H, um, you know, working on doing 4-H projects as well. And I kind of wanted the, the, the episodes to be a little bit like a science fair. Not everybody is a, is a scientist or an innovator. Um, I have, you know, book authors that cover those markets. And then I also have a, a couple, a, a few episodes out. I have a formerly homeless teenager turned baker extraordinaire and inspiration for generations of teens that we went off the street. That's just an extraordinary story. So sometimes we just want to, you know, profile these amazing people, but that innovation of change in society, that ability to actually change, not just the light switch, but breeding light into other people's life by facilitating change. And to me, that is that before it happened, like what happened that, you know, that why did you become homeless? How did that happen? And how is that now changing the way you, you know, your, your career, how your career is now able to change the lives of others. So to me, that, that, that ultimate before it happened moment has 
multiple places that it can that can reside, not just in the technologist. And that's why we just said I could do a really geeky, nerdy show and just have all of my be the you know the chic geek here. But I had other people that I had met, and I kind of look at it as being, um, it's like a you know it's a universal you know we say the hybrid world we work in, but it's like a universal community is that when you start unpeeling the layers and you find these people um, and you find out really why, you know, they exist and not only that they exist, but they're illuminating, you know, their lives and changing people's lives. And so I, I've have said no a lot to people that solicit me for the show. And I'm sure you have too. And I'm like, well, I'm not really here to sell product as much as it is to tell, you know, ignite people to maybe get out and do something different like volunteer, you know, at the local senior center, or, you know, I have a, this is a funny one, new fire station coming into my town. I know I shouldn't be so excited, but literally (laughs) it's a, it's a beautiful fire station. It's less than a quarter mile from me. And they, they painted this wonderful mural on the outside. And I told my daughter, I said, I'm thinking I'm going to make cookies for the firemen. And she just says, mom, that's just kind of weird. I said, they're in our community. I take pride in that. And I think that's one of the things that we've all in retrospect of, you know, the last couple of years of reconnecting with the, 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 the simple things. Firemen have a really exhausting and important job in our community. It's not a job I could do, but the fact that they're doing that job Absolutely. allows me to be home safe and hopefully safer in my, in my home doing what I like to do. I think they deserve some cookies. And, and the funny thing is I'm not even a baker. So <laughs> I might have to have somebody else make those cookies. Well, the, I, there is a, a film called January man as a film, a movie, whatever. I, I, I also date myself by the fact that I call them films still. Uh, and one of the lines from it, it was just this class thing is trying to explain to his, you know, a fellow trying to explain to his you know girlfriend, like, you don't understand, like you, you will never understand me. He says, I run into effing burning buildings when other people are running out. That is what I do. I'm a yeah. fireman. And just like that, the, like trying to explain and, and realizing the weight and the severity that they carry as a job. And it's like, this is not just a volunteer gig to get some hours and some pay. Like you are, you're signing up for something. I, I'm with you. Uh, I applaud uh, all the folks that do that job because it's not an easy one. It's a high risk. Yeah. One. Oh, yes. And, you know, I fly. I used to fly, go flying with my father when I was a kid and sit on uh, crate boxes or books or whatever he can put on the plane. And then during the pandemic, I actually started spending more time at the airport. And one of the things I loved about it is there was a lot of more, it's a very small professional career and a very small hobbyist of women pilots. So um, surrounded by men and to see a woman at the airport, they go, oh, it must be a good day. There's a woman at the airport. It's seldom do you see women at the airport. Usually they're passengers, but I learned so much from their stories, former commercial pilots, former military, former rescue rangers, every type of you can imagine and listening to them and learning their stories and just amazing. And now when I, this, the little travel that I do, I was just up in um, British Columbia and I went to CES um, in Las Vegas. I always had to peek into the, the cockpit because the little planes that I fly, the little uh, Cessna 152, 172s, Beechcraft, they're 
I mean, there's still a lot going on. You cannot have ADHD and fly a plane. Doesn't, doesn't <laughs> exactly. Work. There's a lot have, of gears and pulleys. And I have things. some there's amazing some... friends and most of the, I would say the entrepreneur, I might get in trouble, but some of my, the, the, the deepest, sharpest kind of futurists that I work with, they all admit they have ADHD and the, and the, 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 the celebrity ones, you know, Steve Jobs and Richard Branson. I mean, the first thing that they would admit, but they're also so wicked, brilliant. Like you can jump out of the plane, but you can't fly the plane, right? Yeah. And, and so I learned a lot of discovery in the flying because when you look at the in the cockpit and you see all the steam dials and all the buttons and you're not quite sure where to start, it's very indicative to the entrepreneurial spirit. It's like, where do I get started? And there's no, there, there is a, a, a process when you fly a plane. You do need to know where to start. But when you're an entrepreneur, I don't think there really is a right or wrong answer of where you start. Uh, you know, you can start just with the plan. I know people that start with a really detailed business plan. I know other people that my, my plan was on a napkin. My literally was on a napkin. And I just thought that I have a friend who had told me three years before, you need to do this. And I laughed and I said, no, I'll, maybe someday. And then when I actually saw the, the crack open in the window to bolt and leave the corporate world and create my own business. I never looked back. Yeah. And, and so I don't think, do you, I mean, do you think there's a right where, where to start when you want to bolt out? No, no. In fact, say that the small plane is probably the, probably the greatest, uh, you know, analogy to it. So even more, it's more like getting into the small plane, whereas somebody goes, have a good flight, Dr. Jones. <laughs> you know, there's a rough start ahead. And, but you, you just, there's no option. I actually, one of the most amazing podcast and interview moments I recently saw it was Elon Musk was on the Lex Friedman podcast. And this is an interview skill that I, I show this moment to people. All I, I'm sending them and people think I'm an idiot because I keep saying, like, you got to check this moment out. And it's like 30 seconds of silence. I said, do you understand? Like, this is the, this is the moment where the, and he, he asks him, he says, Elon, you know, what do you think about when you think about what can go wrong and why you shouldn't, like why you won't be able to make it to Mars and like why we won't be able to do something? And he just, he just, and just the beauty of the silence. And he says, I, I can't, I don't, there is no, it's just F it, we'll, we'll get it done. Like, but to give him the moment to just like air that out and sit in silence, it was beautiful. And that's when you, when you think about, should I do this? You, you run it through your head and then you go, huh, there's no reason why I wouldn't. Yeah, you know, the thing I think is most interesting about Elon, and I've never met him, I've heard him speak, I've been in with maybe 50 feet of him. Um, He's a lot taller than I thought he would be. That was one observation. <laughs> yeah, it's, but, it is funny. This, you normally see them just in pictures and you realize like, he's, a, he's a gigantic fellow. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I thought it's, a, I don't think Elon actually has, you know, he's, he's genuine to who he is and he doesn't care. And so he's going to go to Mars if he chooses to go to Mars and he thinks that he's done with Sol for X and he's done for Tesla and, 
and and I just kind of stand back. I I worked years ago on it, one of his first projects, which was a digital media kind of platform, and it, it failed. But and a lot of entrepreneurial things fail, and so you just keep on going. But I yeah. I, I think he generally works on things that he's passionate and believes in, because you can't have that much success and not believe in it. I mean, you just can't. It goes right. back to that core, you know? And it's like, well, what is that core? Um, and we all hear the stories about, you know, he says as a kid, they know he stood out and he was different. And I, I bet he was, you know, he was probably that kid you didn't want to, you know, sit behind because he'd probably pull your pigtails or something, you know? But I think it's, it's just interesting uh, that I had a conversation a few weeks ago with the president of SETI which is the Center for Extraterrestrial. Uh, and it's really Amazing. interesting, this stuff that they do. Yeah, yeah. And they have 100 very high caliber scientists that are working to better our future by looking at the unobvious. And I think that's one of the things that scientists do. They don't look at the obvious, they look at the unobvious. So where do we actually have things like in the ocean? or in space or on Mars that, you know, these are the people that found the, the two new moons. They found the new, uh, the new species of crab, you know, in, in a few years ago. And I think it's really interesting that we have so much untapped in the universe is that there's a race to go to other places, but there's so much that we still have to discover here. Right. And I'd love to go to space because I would just like to experience that. But when I recently watched the movie, Don't Look Up, Don't Look Up, um, I thought I was curious, you know, about that type of stuff when I was a kid, when, when the, you know, looking back at all the different uh, moon launches and now we go to the moon. It's like, oh yeah, we went to the moon. <laughs> it's like, it's not such just like, I went and got a, I went and got a gallon of milk, but there was a time, and, and so I love the movie Hidden Figures because that movie brought out a story of the going to the moon that we hadn't heard before, right. the back end story. And that's the type of stuff that personally, you know, again, excites me because, well, there everybody has a story. And when I was in college, we were told not to write our obituary as a journalism project, which is quite common. We were told to write our manifesto. And I thought that was great because that meant that we had to have a conviction to something, not what nice things people were going to say about us. And I would like nice people. I would like people to say nice things about me someday, but I think ultimately it's like, what do you stand for? And what's that conviction and that driving force that made you, you know, make a decision at some point that you're chosen to do this. And that's what I feel about my podcast is like, it started out as an idea and it's kind of grown. And I have this amazing team that I work with. I have a writer that crafts, you know, collaborates and, you know, crafts the narrative and I have a producer and, and so I, as my daughter would say, mom, you're a little high maintenance. And I'm like, yeah, you know, this was going to be done in the home office. And now I actually have a team and, and then my, my, my social team. And, you know, so it's, it's evolved, but I feel that I have a personal, personal consciousness. And, and like, I'm going to say, I want to give back to each one of my guests, something that they're going to feel good, that it's going to 
is going to be a historical document, almost like the old Encyclopedia Britannica. Does anyone remember those? Yeah. <laughs> and my father would never invest in those. He says, that's a waste of money. They're going to be outdated in a few years. So you're going to be able to get everything online. My father would say that. And I'm like, but what's online? I had a typewriter. <laughs> and so I would get my neighbor's old editions. Which is funny. Yeah, you get but the I, previous editions. You're reading old old things that don't exist or that have yeah. been since undiscovered. <laughs> but do you remember like when things like, Lexus Nexus was like new technology. Right. And yeah. I went to college, undergraduate and graduate school without Google. Most of millennials went without Google. Gen X is no Google. Baby boomers, definitely no boomer. So how did we survive? I think we survived and with our creativity and our unstoppable curiosity. And whether people are conscious that we have it, it's there. You just have to untap it. Yeah, and I'll say to to bring together the value of what you do, you know, we can talk all day about what Elon does and SpaceX does, and, and there's fantastic things that get done. But in fact, what brings it to the most ears and eyes and makes them care about it to the point where they would make it successful was this amazing there was a netflix documentary about the the you know, the the group of four who were like normies right just traditional citizens who were you know citizen space you know flyers now and so citizen astronaut suddenly has this this story behind it and it brought brought excitement to what was being done in the same way that hidden figures if it had been done when it happened, you know, imagine how much further the space race would be. Yeah. If we had that. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the importance of STEM education. I'm a huge advocate of STEM education. And I don't know, I think growing up, we always had it. And then we took a bunch of stuff out of it and particularly public schools started reducing programs and, and maybe private schools, you know, had more programs than others, but we took so much out. It's, it's kind of like the food industry, right? We're going to take all the organic uh, good stuff out and we're going to put in all this, you know, homogenized substitute things. And then the taste goes away. And then we found out they're bad for worse for our health and then the, you know, their, the original purity of a product. And I think that's been the same thing with education and STEM education is that when I grew up, Literally, I was told that there was boys math and there was girls. They had gender math. Math has a gender. And so I was thirsty and wow. hungry to go in the harder math. But I was always told, well, I don't need that. And I've talked to so many people that that experienced that as well. But right. I because I was an honor student, I always bullied my way over to the boys math. Forgiven. And and then. It, that's changed, obviously. And I was really happy to see my daughter in you know, school never had to deal with that. But we have a shortage of, of STEM professionals and particularly women. And so if we can get kids excited about science and technology and engineering and the arts, because I think when you have a, a, a deep technical background, but you also have the appreciation for arts and understanding of how they the two intersect 
um, industrial designers working together with engineers have to work very similar to a storytelling. They have to, to look and listen and then go apply. And I think it's interesting how mechanical engineers and industrial engineers work together to create these ideas and bring them to market and particularly consumer electronics. And, and but we have to, we have to inspire kids to yeah, have that yeah. curiosity. It's a creative process. Like uh, it, it's an amazing thing. And it's funny and looking back to my own. So when I was in high school, I took business English, which was like, you know, and typing and What's like the typing English. It was basically the idea that you would learn how to write a memorandum and like it was uh, like learning traditional office like lingo. And it was funny. So, I mean, I was born in 72. So this was at a point when I was in typing class, we were on IBM Selectric typewriters and it was me and 29 female students. And I was the weird one. And because at the time it was seen as like, you know, working towards administrative work. And it was generally seen as like focused on, you know, traditionally female roles. And, and it was like, it was, I was the odd one out, but then five years later, it was 50, 50. We, Great that, place to meet girls. I know <laughs> it was like <laughs> heaven as one of the 29 at a, a target rich environment. But five years later that it evened out. And in other areas, we still struggle and we have to, but I love this idea of like teach creativity as part of technology and, and empower them that through that story. And they realize it's, it's a beautiful pairing of things. And so, yeah, I just, I have to applaud that you, you do it so well. Well, you There's know, a, my type definitely a book in you and I would love to read it. Uh, I I'm, I'm cheating by listening to your podcast and getting the little snippets along the way. Yeah, well, I'm kind of stuck in the middle of my book, like I was describing the bookends. Um, I, I think I know what it's going to be. I just need to find the discipline to sit down and do it. And I think once I do it, then I won't look back. But I, I want to comment on your typing. So my mother said, typing will be one of the best skills you ever have. And, and I'm like, but mom, I don't want to type. I don't want to <laughs> learn to type. I'm not going to have a typing job. She said, you want to work in the newsroom, you better know how to type. She was right. And so I took typing in summer school because I didn't want it to, to interfere with my regular academics. So I learned to type 125 up to 150 words a minute without error, because that ultimately got me the job interview yeah. that I could go in for, because it used to be a typing test. There's no keyboarding test anymore. Uh, and I know in an editorial, they don't ask you to take a, a test, but it kind of, you know, it gave me that, that entry point to, you know, working in the newsroom. And to be able to more, the faster you type, the more stories you had given to you to set up in the word processor to then go to production. And then eventually I goes, this is where I get a little naughty. So I said, the she devil can be a little bit naughty. I would actually edit things where I would type and make them sound better only nice. without approval. <laughs> <laughs> so when you finally get that, that, that call um, to go into the managing editor's office, because You've been known to be changing copy, but the much appreciated thinking out of the box desire to do that was appreciated and got me promoted out of the, the what I call the editorial pool, which is ultimately the secretarial pool, which was male and female, but predominantly female, just yeah. people just typing away. And 
yeah. So I feel very proud about that. It's being, that was a little bit of my naughtiness that got me to the next level. But I, I think one of the, the things that, that is fascinating about technology is now on my phone, I could literally write up a press release, a pitch, do a presentation, pretty much my mobile office. And in the hybrid world, we have access you know, to content 24 by seven constantly. Um, I wake up and I try not to look straight at the world news because it's a little bit disturbing, um, particularly today, things I've seen. And I'm going, this is not how I want to wake up. I wake up to my lemon tree, literally. And it, it, I look at that and sometimes there's no lemons, but right now it's prolifically full of lemons. And I say, oh, Life gives you lemons, right? You go to, you do, you're going to make lemonade. So it's very symbolic. It's no happy accident. I have a lemon tree there, but no two days are alike. And I think that's the great thing about what I've chosen. My career is as a news reporter, no two days were alike in public relations. No two days are alike. No two clients are alike. And that's the kind of a common thread that I've seen is having that, that, that constant curiosity means I'm going to have a lot of diversity. It's uh, what's given you success so far. And as a consumer of your stories, I got to say, Donna, you do it well. And okay. anybody I get paid to have you, fun. That's a magical thing, isn't it? <laughs> this is, you know, this uh, I, one quote I, I, I get, and although he's as somewhat a, obviously a controversial figure these days, uh, but I enjoy some of the, the sort of the, the quotes uh, as Dr. Jordan Peterson. And he says that creative people often create an incredible amount of value rarely for themselves. And when you think of that pool of how much creativity was in that pool and how few of them will exit that pool, it, it's, it is amazing. So you deservedly made it outside of the pool and uh, like I say, anybody that gets to work with you is is doing well and uh, will no doubt be pleased with the outcome. It's been a real pleasure to share time with you. And I will definitely make sure that we're going to have links to your podcast and to, to everything about you. What's the best way if people do want to get a hold of you, Donna? How do they do that? Well, there's a couple of ways. Uh Probably my my easiest uh, business way is LinkedIn. It's just Donna Laughlin, and that's L O U G H L I N. Uh, before it happened, podcast show on Instagram, and before it happened, dot uh, com for the podcast. Uh, and my email is Donna at lmgpr.com. and you can use any of those avenues to get a hold of me, and I'd be delighted to, you know, to chat, mentor, or share stories. Or if you think that you are a candidate for the, the show, absolutely email me as well. Well, I definitely think we got some folks that we can send your way. And, uh, and I said, uh, maybe maybe one day I'll be lucky and I'll be a founder myself and I'll have a story to share and, and I'll be there. Uh, and I would it, it would be it would be a pleasure to be on on your show. It's so beautifully done. So congratulations on continued work that's going on there. Oh, thank you. Now, do we get your disco music? I I know sadly there's very little disco in my in my life. The hilarious thing is my 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 name came from uh so I'm old enough that email was new, right? You you and I remember those days potentially you're you're uh, you remember when email started and I would move from place to place when I lived in Toronto. And every time I would move, 
you would get to a location that didn't have the same service provider. So we'd have to go from Bell to Rogers, you know, same as AT&T, Verizon. And every time I would move, they would give you a new email address. And it was like at rogers.com. And then I would move to somewhere. I was like, oh, at bell.com. And then I moved back to a place that had Rogers. And I was like, perfect. I'll be Eric Wright at rogers.com again. And they'd be like, oh, no, that one's taken. I'm like, no, no, no. I know it was my email address. They're like, oh, well, you can't reuse the email. I'm like, no, no, it was you my email. <laughs> <laughs> and that was like AOL was beginning. And so what I finally did was I, I bit the bullet. And one, I was in a bunch of different bands. And one of the bands I was in called the Disco Posse. And we did extremely heavy versions of disco songs. And it was kind of fun. And so I thought, I'm going to use that as my email domain because no one will take that. That's <laughs> an awesome name. Well, my favorite disco song was uh, the Bee Gees Staying Alive the last couple of years. So I think that was a really good one for all That's of us it. to dance to. We, dancing, uh, in, dancing into it. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, Eric on as a guest and hopefully I've uh, ignited some curiosities and people to do something great. Most definitely. Most definitely. Thank you very much.